Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This conversation is about the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Christians in Philippi. Again, I guess, Mike, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the leading cities in what was then called Macedonia, part of what we would call Greece today, and a church in that city that was really close to Paul's heart. It was the first church that he had established in what we would now call Europe. He'd had an enormously frustrating time, it seems, on his second missionary journey when uh, he was in what we would call Turkey and trying to get in here and trying to get in there. And he keeps saying, but the spirit of Jesus didn't allow us in Acts chapter 16. And one night when he's asleep, he has this vision of a man from Macedonia, he's described, who calls to him and says, come over and help us. And suddenly Paul understands. He he realizes now why nothing had opened up in what he tried to do. We tried to enter Bithynia. We tried to enter Mysia, he said, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow us. He has this vision. Suddenly he's got it's clear and it needs for him to jump on a boat the next morning and cross over to the mainland. And Philippi is one of the places where he first plants a church on the mainland there in Macedonia. Paul is a man with a mission. He, he, he's constantly, by the look of it, you know, uh, yeah. looking for opportunities to share the message. Constantly. And I think that's why he was so frustrated when these places wouldn't open up in Acts 16. And I, I think from what we know of Paul, he would have prayed about it. He would have felt that's what he should have done. And yet it wouldn't open. So when this does open up, he grabs it with both hands. And there's this sort of inner impelling in Paul that we see throughout his letters and throughout the book of Acts to constantly reach, he describes it as new territories, regions beyond. His passion was actually to get to Spain, which of course was the ends of the earth in those days, as far as they were concerned. And he has this passion, this constant drive to take the gospel where it's not been known before. And as we saw in a previous episode, to go to strategic cities where he could establish churches and help them be built up and then from that leave them to evangelize the hinterland behind them and to reach out from there. So he's very much a a man with a mission, without a doubt. And all that came about from that encounter that he had with Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Remember, This was a Pharisee whose sole aim in life was to root out the Christians. He felt this was heresy and abuse of the true Jewish religion. And he was given letters of commission to go and hunt down these Christians and to bring them for trial. And yet when he had that encounter with the risen Jesus, the one he was persecuting, or at least his followers that he was persecuting, He suddenly discovers that this Jesus whom he firmly believed was dead, was not dead at all. He had seen him, encountered him on the Damascus road, and he suddenly realizes that what he has been opposing is true. And his whole life is turned around that day. 
And on that day, Jesus speaks to him and, and says that I'm commissioning you to go to the Gentiles with this message. And from that moment on, his whole life, his burning passion is to take the good news of Jesus to people who didn't know it. You've also highlighted for me that each of these letters from Paul to these different churches has a different tone. So what's the tone of this one? Oh, I think we can sum it up in one word, joy. There is unmitigated joy, really, from start to finish. There's a couple of little sort of prods and provocations in the middle of the letter, but it is probably the most joyful letter that, that Paul writes. He, he's so grateful to God and he's so grateful for what God has continued to do in these Philippian Christians. And the thing that sparked off this particular letter was Paul is under house arrest uh, in Rome at this time. Oh, so he's, he's, he's not won the lottery or something? Uh, he's definitely not won the lottery. His, his joy is not based on his uh, circumstance. You know, happiness is often dependent on happenings. But joy is based in something much deeper. You know, the only happenings here is he got arrested in Jerusalem after a riot had happened and ended up appealing to Caesar and taken to Rome where he's under house arrest for two years as we saw when we looked at Ephesians. So, yeah, this is not happiness based on happenings. This is deep, profound joy in what? In knowing who he is out of knowing who Christ is. He has got it. He, he'd always believed in God as a good Jew. Of course he had. But he suddenly has come to understand on that Damascus road who Jesus is, what God God was doing through Jesus, building a family of faith that would fill the earth. And the joy of knowing that he'd been invited to become part of this, this adventure, and given such a significant role in that as well. And it was that deep joy of knowing Jesus and that he had a call in Jesus and that no matter what happened, even when things, quotes, seemed to go wrong in life, there was still cause for joy because God was still doing stuff through it. There's this great bit in chapter one where, I mean, the letter starts out with, oh, I thank God every time I remember you. And there's this lots of praise there. But then he, he goes on to say in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what had happened to him there? under house arrest in Rome. Not the best of circumstances. But he says it served the gospel. And he says, as a result, it's become clear through the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So clearly under his house arrest, he'd had a Roman soldier there, one or two with him each day. And it looks like as they'd worked through the Praetorian guard who'd been put in charge of him because he was due to appear before the emperor, the mad Nero, by the way, that each of these guards, you know, I often imagine them thinking, what's my duty today? Oh, I've got Paul. He's going to preach the gospel to me again, I'm sure. And the whole palace guard has heard about it. He says it's become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously 
and fearlessly. So he just said, okay, I'm chained up, but guess what? I, I get to preach to people I would never have reached otherwise. I get to preach to Nero's crack bodyguards. And because of this, people are thinking, well, if Paul can do that in his circumstances, surely I can do it in mine. So he is full of positive thinking. Why? Because he is caught up in this great vision of what God has done for us in Jesus and of the thrill of knowing that he has been invited in to share in that adventure and that message. It sounds as if, you know, despite his circumstances, he's discovered something that all of us surely long for, and that's true contentment. Oh, absolutely. And he'll go on to say, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. And again, if I can just use that phrase, you know, happiness is based on happenings. But what happens when the happenings don't happen? What happens when the happenings happen badly? And suddenly the happiness is gone. And he has learned that whatever state I am in, I've learned to be content. Why? Because I have got such a confidence that God is in control, that my life is in his hands. So anything that comes my way, whether it looks good or bad, God has purpose in it. And if I'll just focus on that and work with that, I will see something good coming out of this. There's a lovely section in chapter three where, oh, there have been some people who've gone into Philippi, the Judaizers that we've spoken about previously, who really were trying to get the Philippian Christians to take on board the whole of Judaism. And he said, listen, you know, they've been telling you, I didn't mention this because I'm not a very good Jew. Listen, I was one of the best Jews that there was, you know, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, etc., etc. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake, I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, refuse, the stuff you throw out on the tip that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It was all about Jesus. It was not a whistling in the dark, a hoping for the best, a case, sarah, sarah. He had discovered Jesus or rather Jesus had found him and life had changed and this absolute conviction that whatever happens, Jesus is there at the center with him. And he, he goes on, he's got this next, you know, it's also lovely. I could just keep going on forever here. He goes on to say, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Oh, that's powerful. Christ has grabbed hold of me. Now I want to grab hold of him and everything he has of him. And he uses an illustration that the Philippians with their Greek culture would really have understood. Uh, the Greeks loved races and athletics, and they would have had those in their city and he, he uses that image and says forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead i press on towards the goal 
to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And that expression, I press on towards the goal. The Greek word used there is the finish line, the finishing line in a race. And he's saying, I, I, I'm taking life now as, as a race. It's an exciting race. But what I'm doing is, you know, I've got rid of all the clutter because you can't run a race when you've got all your long flowing robes on, can you? Or your best party dress, you know, shorts and singlet out there. And I'm pressing on. I'm not constantly looking behind me. If a runner kept turning his head round all the time, you know, he would soon lose his rhythm and pace. He has to keep fixed on the goal, fixed on that finishing line. He is going for it. He is not going to let anyone pass him. And he says, that's now what, is the impetus in my life. I'm, it's Jesus. I mean, the whole letter is about Jesus and the joy Jesus brings. It's Jesus who's saved him. It's Jesus who's with him. It's Jesus who's his goal and ambition in life. And that changes everything, he says. What I'm sort of picking up particularly is that, you know, his encounter, his famous encounter on the Damascus Road was, was in the past. It, it had happened, but it didn't just stop then. And he doesn't look back to that. It, 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 there's, there's something here about his ongoing relationship with that Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus was for him a historical figure, no doubt, but he wasn't just a historical figure. He was a risen figure. You see, as a good Jew, Paul would have believed, and certainly as a Pharisaic Jew, he would have believed in resurrection. But he believed that resurrection would be something God would do at the end of time. And yet here he had met the risen Jesus. And so his logic started to work. If God raises the dead at the end and Jesus is now risen and God only raises people at the end, then the end must be starting to break in. God's kingdom is starting to break in. And this risen Jesus through his spirit is with me day by day. So there's this profound sense in this letter, as in all of his letters, of Jesus not just being a historical personage, but as definitely someone who lived and died and rose again, but who is still here with us by his spirit, who's who's on a journey with us, who's in a, a race with us. And that's what transformed life for him and still can for us. And that's where that true contentment came from then. Absolutely. Uh, he'd found what life was all about. But it wasn't, I found what life's about, let me put my slippers on now. I found what life is all about. I found something worth living for. Do you know, one of the things that strikes me about the younger generation in particular today is they do want to make a difference. They, they, they want a purpose. You know, you see them getting impassioned about wanting to save the earth from global warming and these sort of things. They get impassioned about modern slavery or how people of other races are treated. And if you want a passion, if you want a cause, then you can find no greater cause than lining up with Jesus and becoming part of God's great plan to see people transformed and this world transformed. That's what Paul found and that's what we can still find through Jesus today. What kind of reminder does he have for the Christians in Philippi then about the example that Jesus set? Oh, there is a brilliant example right at the heart of his letter in chapter two, where 
he reminds them of Jesus and says, you know, if you, if you want a model for life and how life should look, then you can find it in Jesus. And chapter two, verse five, he says to them, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he then, well, we're not quite sure, but there's like a little hymn, as it were, an early Christian hymn. And we're just unsure whether this was a hymn that Paul himself wrote or whether it had become well-known in Christian circles and some other person had written it and he quotes it here just like a preacher might do that today. But he has this hymn that really sums up everything about Jesus. It, it, it's, it's the story of Jesus, not in its sort of micro detail as we get in the Gospels, but a summary of the story of Jesus from his incarnation through his humiliation on the cross and his exaltation. He says, have this sort of attitude of Jesus who being in very nature God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there's the first two parts, his incarnation, the one who was in very nature God, at a moment in human history became in very nature. Now, we often think it says man, human being, it doesn't, in very nature, servant, slave, the lowest form of human being that there was in those days, from the highest height to the lowest depth. That's who our Jesus was. He willingly laid aside his divine power and attributes in order to become truly a human being. And then to be prepared to go to the cross, he says, even death on a cross. Why does he underline that? Because death on a cross was the most humiliating form of death there was in those days. For a Jew, someone who hung on a cross was under a curse of God. For Romans and Greeks, the cross was reserved for despised rebels, renegades, runaway slaves. Yet Jesus went that low to pay the price for us. But then he completes the story. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So there's the whole, if you like, cycle of Jesus's life from the exaltation of heaven that he freely gave up, taking the lowest place on earth and being ready to die in our place. And because of that, God accepting his sacrifice and exalting him back to his rightful place again. It is a fantastic hymn that Paul includes there in chapter two. And I guess the key word is right at the beginning, because you said Paul is saying, have the same attitude as Christ. Yes, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's attitude he focuses in there, even rather than his action. If we say we're a Christian, then at the very heart of being a Christian is being like Christ. Actually, the word Christian originally meant little Christ, Christ follower. 
uh, and it was used as a bit of an insult when it was first used of the first Christians in Antioch. But that's exactly what we're called to be. We, we're called to be those who seek to follow the example of Jesus. So practically, what does that mean for us? I think it means, you know, don't sit on your own dignity. Just be ready to get down off your lofty perch at times. Get low. How low? As low as you need to go to serve others and the benefit of others. Yeah, but won't people trample on me? Yes, probably like they did with Jesus. But you know what? If you do what's right and take the low place, God will exalt you and God will lift you up just like he did Jesus. So there's a great sort of paradigm model here for Christian living. And the remarkable thing is that out of that comes the joy that Paul's talking about, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems so opposite, doesn't it, David? How on earth can joy come out of the cross? And let's face it, at that moment when the cross happened, as we look at those records in the four Gospels, the the pain, the agony that it cost Jesus, the anguish for the disciples, for his mother watching there, it seemed anything but joy. And yet, you know, time and again, we see in the scriptures that what people mean for evil, God takes that very thing and turns it for good. And it seemed like anything but joy, and it wasn't at that moment. It was real anguish for Jesus. But out of that, God brought incredible things for you and for me. And out of the pain that those first disciples experienced to watch that crucifixion, great joy when they encountered their risen master. You know, Jesus once said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it does fall into the ground, it will bear much fruit. And there's a principle there for joyful Christian living. We so often try to cling on to our life and our rights and our situations. And yet, if we will just let that go at times, yeah, and that might mean at times people trampling all over us. Who cares if we're doing what is right? But when the seed falls into the ground and dies, resurrection life principle rushes in and some amazing things happen and bring this deep joy, this confidence that God always wins. We win, you know, really is the motto of the Christian life. But we might have to go through the cross before we can say that. You said that Paul uses this analogy of, of running the race, which uh, I guess what in Philippi in the Greek culture would have been a helpful picture. But is he also at the same time saying if you don't do that, you know, there, there will be implications? Absolutely. You know, runners knew that there were things that helped them in their training and there were things that got in the way. Athletes still do today. Eating the right diet, doing the right sort of discipline is what will help them run the race or win the fight or whatever it might be. And, you know, and it's the same for us. There are things that we as Christians need to invest in as a good diet. The most fundamental one is prayer, talking to God every day, at worship, meeting with other Christians, serving. There's nothing like serving to keep you fit and healthy uh, for Jesus. But there are also things that, that need to be discarded. Paul talked about getting rid of the stuff that, that got in the way. And, you know, we need to get rid of the things that get in the way. The, you know, I'll be honest, I, I could be really lazy if, if I wanted to. It, 
It wouldn't take me much at all just to sit in a chair all day and read a book. And laziness so easily, you know, can creep up on all of us, even those of us who, you know, think of ourselves as activists. Sin, that's stuff in our, from our old life that still clings on, that we have to work at and ask Jesus to help us with. These are all sorts of things that we need to be careful not to allow space in our life. Now, they don't miraculously disappear the minute we put our trust in Jesus. But, you know, if we'll allow him in and allow his spirit in and allow one another in, you know, sometimes if we're struggling with a, a particular sin or weakness, sometimes there is nothing like confessing to a fellow brother or sister, I'm struggling with this. W would you check up on me right now? I've got a friend in my church who occasionally struggles with looking at the wrong sort of stuff on his computer. And he's given me permission to send him random text messages saying, how are you today? And he will quickly tell me if he does end up looking at something wrong. Why? Because he has to? No. But because he's chosen to and he knows he's better rid of this stuff. And accountability, just having to face up to someone and say, yeah, I did that. It's actually a good provoker and a good sort of scaffolding to help get the building up until it's done. Which leads me to remind myself that as you read these letters, it's not just Paul on his own. There's others, of course, that he's worked with. I think, does he sometimes call them co-workers? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there are a couple mentioned early on in the letter where he says to them, I want to send you Timothy. Now, remember, he's in jail in Rome. He wants to know what's going on. And he's hoping to send Timothy, one of his co-workers, to him soon. He also mentions Epaphroditus, who was someone that the Philippians had sent to him while he was in jail with news and presumably with perhaps some supplies and resources and so on. They, they'd sent gifts. And at the end of the book, he actually thanks them for the gift that they have sent. So Paul was not he was not a lone worker. Uh, you can see this in Acts. You see it pretty much in all his letters. There are always reference to others. He was a great team player. You know, he, in football terms, he may have been a great striker and put lots of balls in the back of the net, but he knew he could not do that without a great team of players there with him. And, and he was a great team player, loved working in team. The Timothy we mentioned was someone he took as a very young man, saw something in him, trained him, mentored him, took him with him, ended up sending him to the great church at Ephesus to look after it for him. So we get these mentions of names often. Look out for them when you're reading Paul's letters and you'll see some of them recurring again and again. One of the aspects of the running the race and the athlete imagery perhaps is that that could be interpreted as it's all done in your own strength. You know, it depends on your own skills and so on. But hmm. from Paul's point of view, there's more to it, I'm sure. Paul is profoundly aware that he can't do it in his own strength. He can't do anything. In fact, yeah, one of the reasons we've said he wrote this letter was to thank them for the strength that they'd provided, the fellowship that's a key theme in this letter again, through providing this, these practical gifts and resources that he'd needed there. And there's this lovely phrase in, in chapter four, 
and verse 12 as he's talking about their gifts and thanking them for it and, and sort of really wanting them to know, even in saying thank you for it, you know, I'm not trying to get any more out of you. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There was the key for Paul. Where did he find his strength? Not in some sort of inner resilience that he himself had. He acknowledges his weakness in many places in his letters but recognises he can only do this through the strength uh, that God has given to him. And sometimes that strength is expressed through fellowship from those around us, like the Philippians had in sending their gift and their messengers. But Paul says, you know, whenever we give to help others like that, he ends up with this, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We, we never give anything away and end up the poorer. We always end up the richer. It may not be financially rich, but we can never outgive God. So in conclusion, this letter, a remarkable letter, a theme of joy runs right through it. Absolutely. And I would say the takeaway is whatever situation we are in, joy is always possible. Now, that doesn't mean there might be a big wide smile on your face and you'd be laughing all the way, but that deep joy, that deep conviction that this is okay, it's okay. Because God is with me. Jesus is with me. His spirit is with me. It's okay. Circumstances may not look good, but it's okay. I know he is with me. And that is the deep joy that Paul experienced under house arrest in Rome. And that is the same deep joy that we can have when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus, just like Paul did. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Tabernak. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.